Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, and I am joined today, as always, uh, by my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt of uh, Linnae Holdings. Rob is out in San Diego, uh, where actually I will be in about a week, uh, escaping this miserable weather we're having in Chicago. One more snow dump on the way, uh, but then I get to head for the West Coast for a few days. So, Rob, how are you doing? I'm really good. I'm super fired up about today's show, so I love the show we're going to cover, and Lots happening in the cannabis world this week, too, so this would be a lot of fun today. Absolutely. And in addition to our news and great uh, Grateful Dead talk, we are also joined today by a uh, really good guest who we're excited to have with us, Scott Berman of the Panther Opportunity Fund, uh, which is a vintage cannabis-focused venture capital fund uh, with a complementary and diverse set of 14 portfolio companies. Um, and we will uh, be introducing Scott in a moment as well and uh, talk with him about that as well as uh, Grateful Dead Talk because Scott is, like all of us, a deadhead, and uh, that just makes it more fun for us. Um, so, Scott, welcome to our show, and we look forward to speaking with you shortly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Rob, news. What's going on in the cannabis world? Wow, lots of stuff. Uh, let's start with um, L.A. County switching the Board of County Supervisors and kind of what they're thinking about in terms of uh, opening up the market a little bit. So people in California don't really understand that when they think California is a legal adult-use state, they forget that that only is dependent on where you are in the state, and different pockets are legal and different pockets are not. So even though the city of L.A. is legal for adult use, the county of L.A. Uh, means that the incorporated cities within the county can make their own self-determination on how they want to handle it, but the unincorporated part of the county is handled by a board of county supervisors. Previously, those guys were against cannabis. Uh, as of yesterday or today, uh, they are for it, which means there's going to be a whole new wave of license applications opening up and potentially 25 more dispensaries opening up in unincorporated uh, L.A. County, uh, with preference being given to equity applicants, which, again, as we all know, creates all sorts of new issues because then the question is, how do um, non-equity applicants game the system and find straw man equity applicants to you know, sort of front the organization, which is never the intent of these rules to start with, but it appears to be what everyone's doing. <laughs> Welcome to the cannabis world, huh? That's just one more way to, to do, look. People are always sneaky and always find out ways to do things the way they want, but uh, very few states, as we've discussed before, have really thought about equity from the right perspective, which is if we're going to empower these guys to be... Um, uh, cannabis operators, and we should also create a fund that finances them. You know, I always look at the same way I look at TARP. You know, initially you might put some money up, but ultimately it should make the money back for the state. And if you want to approach it that way, then I think it'd be a great thing for everyone. If not, this is just you know backdoor ways to uh, give licenses to others using some sort of a straw man as a front person. So I have to tell you though, uh, Rob, this sounds a whole hell of a lot like Chicago politics. How they managed to pull that switch at the uh, commissioner level. Uh, the way, uh, the way California works, it all depends on whatever the most recent election cycle was. So, for instance, I'm in San Diego County. Previously, San Diego County, it was three to two against cannabis at the Board of County Supervisors level. In the last election, it became four to one in favor. So whatever we're seeing in L.A., expect to see San Diego follow suit really soon. So it's not surprising. It's just a question of how long it takes after people are you know, brought into the, uh, the board. And once they are, then they go through their priority list. And I think for this one, cannabis took about uh, six months after the last election. And, uh, and here we go. You know, you're, you're going to see it change. It could always change back the other way. If it does, that board could sunset whatever the last group did. But normally if they sunset it, it's five or six years where, you know, they give these groups to operate, so they don't have to close down right away. And if they do that, then very likely there's a change of composition again before that, which is very similar to what you saw in, in Illinois when, you know, Rauner took over. 
So it's, you know, it's, it's not a huge difference that, you know, different people can see things different ways, but they can't just immediately uh, turn the clock back and stop it. They've got to give a period of sort of a transition. So, you know, other, other counties very well may follow. Uh, it just depends on how conservative the county is. I think the, the rule of thumb in California is the further away from the coast you get and the further, further north you get, the more conservative it is. But, you know, I think you'll see unincorporated San Diego County open up soon. I think, you know, unincorporated Orange County uh, will follow suit soon. But L.A. is the first one to go, and it's big news. That, that adds a lot of new territory to legal cannabis in California. Wow. Okay. Well, very interesting. And I, as I said, I'm going to be out in uh, Southern California this coming week, so I will have to uh, poke my nose around a little bit and see what's going on out there. It's always a fun place. Just got to poke around, Larry. Just got to poke around, no doubt about it. Now, here's... um. Something that, you know, almost seems like it should have happened ages ago. But the NFL is finally uh, starting to come around a little bit on cannabis. And whereas, you know, in the past, a number of star players have uh, wound up missing games because of testing positive for cannabis, you know, notwithstanding all the studies that are showing that cannabis is great for pain relief and better than all the opioids that the league puts them on. So it comes as a little bit of a surprise that this last week uh, the NFL announced that it's going to award a million dollars to medical researchers at the University of California in San Diego and to the University of uh, uh, Regina up in Canada to investigate the effects of cannabinoids on pain management and neuroprotections from concussion. Um, And they're hoping that it may lead to the discovery of some evidence that could impact pain management for the players. And this is coming from uh, Dr. Alan Sills, who's the NFL's chief medical officer, and, and, and indicating that you know the league is going to start focusing on this now and uh, move away from punishing players and seeing if there's not a, a way that perhaps cannabis consumption, um, certainly within moderation, I'm sure, but could hopefully be a non-opioid, uh, if you will, source of pain medication that a lot of the players who already have used it in the past for that and have adapted to it and are familiar with it, you know, sounds like a number of them might really like it too. But it just represents a big move, right? The NFL has has had a lot of um, image problems the last couple of years, especially with the Colin Kaepernick stuff and, you know, being a step or two behind the times and not being really receptive to the fact that it's a league whose players are, uh, you know, in large majority uh, black. And, you know, it's often been seen as a lack of concern for these players uh, and for other players and, and really anyone as a whole. And, you know, now here's the NFL doing this. You know, they're huge, they're gigantic, everybody knows the NFL. And, you know, the impact that this could have uh, on uh, the medical use of uh, cannabis at uh, many different levels is uh, is really, really huge. What do you think about that, Rob? I mean, first, I think, you know, newsflash, Roger Goodell, cannabis is not a performance-enhancing drug. So, you know, once you sort of start with the baseline of, you know, this isn't, uh, gaming a system that uh, you know allows you to perform like a uh, Russian figure skater, uh, <laughs> you're, you're probably okay, right? So you know, on that side of it, Goodell can go back to the agenda he currently has over people taking knees, protesting racial disparity. So you know, this is a, it's a good move for the NFL. It's a good image move for the NFL. Uh, I'd expect hockey's going to you know probably follow suit. I mean, look, basketball's been pretty pro canvas for a long time. I'm sure Scott can speak to that in a little bit, but. You look back to the 1970s, and you know I think the the vast majority of players were using cannabis back then. Nothing's really changed. So it's you know if the sports leagues can actually come out, and especially the NFL and the in the NHL, where concussions are a major issue, uh, then I think that it's a, a very you know it's going to bring a lot of positive optics to the potential benefit of cannabinoids. 
Yeah, I think so. And my understanding is, is that the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, were really way out ahead of the game on this and that one of their medical trainers uh, had experience with medical cannabis and, and brought it to the attention of the, uh, of the Steelers, non-THC, I'm sure, to avoid uh, potential uh, drug test detections, um, but trying to incorporate CBD into the regimen of players uh, to help with concussion situations. So, um, you know, it's great when one team is willing to t- step out and take that risk. It's even better, I think, uh, when the league as a whole is willing to do it. So, you know, that'll be great. And, um, you know, certainly we'll see what happens with that and uh, something to keep an eye on. And I'm sure the players will be very happy about it. And it won't before long before. Well, I guess it, it, I'll tell you what's really funny about this is last week on um, Bill Maher, he had Ricky Williams. And they were talking about how Ricky Williams' football career came to an end because he chose cannabis over football, you know, and it may be just possible the way the league shapes these rules and had it happened during his time, he could have continued to be, you know, a, a superstar level football player. And do, do you ever think about that though? Like what he gave up because he loved to smoke weed to me, you want to talk about a statement, like a real statement in favor of cannabis. Like Ricky Williams should be held out as like one of the greatest like cannabis pioneers of all time, because that guy walked away from like literally one of the, the best possible potential careers in front of him in favor of saying, I don't agree with the policy. And I, I absolutely, from a principal perspective, applaud the guy. And I don't think there's too many guys out there that have the guts to do what he did. Well, that may be true. And I'll just say, as a guy who lives in Chicago but isn't a Bears fan and has to tolerate it all the time, playing for Mike Ditka could drive anybody crazy. So, you know, I could certainly understand where that might come from. But, yeah, right? I mean, and, and think about how stupid the league is, you know, to take such a, a, a mindless stand uh, to the point where they're going to lose one of their marquee players. And now, you know, he's gone out and, and he's doing his thing. And I'll tell you, Rob, as a lawyer, I can't help but notice that I, I heard it first before I read it, right, that the name of his company is Heisman. And I thought, oh, boy, the Heisman group is not going to be happy with this, but he spells it H-I-G-H-S-M-A-N. So I imagine that it's not the same name exactly, And but I wonder whether or not the Heisman group will go and object to it, considering that I'm sure quite a few members of the Heisman group have from time to time uh, probably partaken in this substance as well. Well, it might be a good time to, uh, to introduce our guest, Scott Berman, and get his thoughts on this. Scott, you want to you chime in? You obviously know that the sports league is probably far better than both Larry and I. It's, it's a very exciting development. It's about time. Um, I can already tell you what the study's going to say. I can give you guys a preview. It's going to say that cannabis works better than opioids and is much safer. And, and it's not a performance enhancing drug. So it's like about time. A lot of these guys, as you said, have been using cannabis for pain management forever. They're just doing it without getting caught. So it should be a lot more accessible. Um, it should be prescribed by the team doctors. I like that you said the Steelers guy is actually really into it. We need the medical professionals to say to the owners, this is gonna keep your, you know, the owners want these players to be healthy and get back on the field if they get a concussion. And, and, and prolong their careers. And cannabis is a huge development here. Um, I also think it's like with the Ricky Williams thing, I, I do admire him a lot, Rob. He, you know, he's really took a stand. He chose his health and he said, this is what I need to do. And now he's an entrepreneur and he's, he was right. And eventually the league will come around to what he said. So it's a great development. Yeah, I think it is very exciting. And it's always nice when a, a, a high-profile uh, player like that is uh, is willing to step out and do that. Um, now, uh, before we dive into a little more talk with Scott about uh, what brings him to our show today, uh, I'm getting frantic uh, signals from my producer that uh, I aired at the beginning here because we have a, uh, a wonderful Grateful Dead show lined up for us today. And um, 
our, our, our norm is for me to go ahead and give an introduction of it. And so I'm going to do that really quickly, and then we'll go back to what we were talking about. So uh, on today's show, um, in addition to uh, chatting with Scott, uh, we are going to be talking about a Grateful Dead show from February 21st, 1995, uh, in Salt Lake City. And this show really interests Rob and I quite a bit, uh, and I'm hoping Scott too. Not only is it a 95 show, so it's Jerry's last year, uh, it's in Salt Lake City, which if you wanted to pick one town and say, uh, is there any one place in America that's probably about as anti-Grateful Dead values as you could find, uh, people might point to Salt Lake City, uh, and yet nevertheless, there they are. Uh, and so to uh, give everyone a little taste for our show today, we're going to uh, uh, we're going to play a little clip from the very opening tune of the Salt Lake City show, and uh, then uh, Rob, who is uh, an attendee at the show, can give us a little background on that as well. Dan, go ahead and spin that for us, would you please? When young Brigham saw it first Said I seen some nasty desert lord But this one here's the worst Lord of a band of Brigham Said I got a great idea I want him out of sea And I think I want him here That ten of righteousness will fail Sound like what the hell was you play So Rob, you're in Salt Lake City Seeing the Grateful Dead the Grateful Dead walk out on stage and sing a song about Salt Lake City that I guess was an old Bob Weir tune, right, from Bobby and the Midnights. And I've heard it a few times on Grateful Dead radio. Do you have a recollection of them ever having played that tune other than that occasion as the Grateful Dead? I don't. And uh, I can tell you, we were all talking about before the show, they're going to play Salt Lake City while they're here. You know, just the way you always, you know, hope that they play Truckin' if, you know, they mention your town's name in, in Truckin' or, you know, in Jack Straw, you know, certain songs that mention, you know, cities in the, uh, in the songs. But did we think they were going to come out and open with it? No. I mean, look, there's a lot of places like you know that, that I can think of where you live there, and you hope that you know your favorite band comes to town, and you know someday it eventually happens. We didn't think there's a chance ever that the Grateful Dead were going to play Salt Lake any more than they'd go back to New Orleans, <laughs> right? So when they announced at the end of '94, uh, when they announced the spring tour and the first show of the year, first you know three shows of the year were kind of just a, a random three night run in Salt Lake. That was the biggest news that hit me, you know, and I lived in Salt Lake at that point for, for five years, and uh, we were floored, and we were super fired up, and uh, that was one of the most fun three-night runs I've ever had, partly because, as you know, living in Chicago, when you get to go home and sleep in your own bed after a show, uh, it sure makes it that much more fun, and when you can invite, you know, two or three hundred of your favorite friends to come back with you, it uh, makes it even better. Well, I, I mean, but I, this just cracks me up because, first of all, it's one of those Bobby songs that's out there in the in the dead universe that, you know, Bobby, like Bombs Away and stuff like that, right, that, you know, that, that he has no trouble singing, but I could never imagine Jerry going along with, and here they are playing this tune, and in Salt Lake City, and I guess it's kind of deferential to, to Brigham Young and, and the Mormons, right? He's not really dissing on them or anything, he's just saying that they got yeah, here. Yeah, he is. No, he's, he's, he's poking some fun at him. Well, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit, but not 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 maybe as much as like South Park, right? So, um, but you know, he's up there. Saying, what was there? Did the I mean, the crowd obviously had a great, wonderful reaction to it. Was that uh, you know genuinely felt, or were they the newspapers the next day, you know, proclaiming the end of the universe? No, here's here's the thing. This is an interesting one. The security to get into the Delta Center was so bad, and the lines were so long that the arena was probably half empty when Salt Lake City came on. And when you know people came in and said what they opened with. People like Salt Lake City, I was like, ah, oh, crap, I missed it. Like, half the people I know missed the opener that night. Half the people I know missed the first two or three songs. 
it was, uh, you know, as you can imagine, with, you know, you, you take that much, like, rampant drug use in a uh, crowd and it, combine that with the Salt Lake City Police Department that's never faced off against anything like this before, they're doing everything they could just to, like, you know, move people through while still searching absolutely everyone in a way that, like, you know, like, they went through everything. Had the dead ever played there before? They played Park West in 1987. I remember that, right up on the side of a hill. Yeah, yeah, which is now the Canyons. But uh, they played Park West. They played, um, I want to say they might have played Park West in 83 as well. But no, I mean, they, they were played in Salt Lake. I think the last time they played Salt Lake was probably in the very early 70s. But, you know, from like the time they started playing like, you know, the sheds and, uh, and, and not theaters anymore. Nope, nothing. Wow. Okay, well, we will get back to that show in a few minutes. As you can tell, it's one that's going to uh, have a lot of good talk about it, and uh, we look forward to it. But uh, let's get to our guest, Scott Berman. And, Scott, welcome to the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show. We appreciate you taking some time to join us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Tell us about Panther Opportunity Fund. What is it? What did you do? How do you get it started and all of that? Sure. So we've been investing in cannabis for about eight years. The Panther Fund was our second fund. We're now on our third. Um, we've invested in about 40 companies across about 22 different sectors of the cannabis space. So we, we invest a lot in the ancillary businesses, you know, the picks and shovels. We also invest in grows and retailers and brands. So we look uh, to be diversified in the space. Who are the we? Uh, so yeah, my partners are uh, Jordan Tritt and Ramey Tritt and David Friedman. Um, they're sure, I know Dave. Yep, you might know some of them. And Jordan, mm -hmm. Ramey Tritt was uh, my first uh, mentor in the space for venture capital. He actually invested in my, st I had a startup in California in 2014 and 15. It did distribution. Ramey was an investor in our, our deal. Um, and so when I got involved in investing in cannabis, I called him and I got into the fund uh, in 2017. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. And, and where is it at today? And, and what are you guys doing with it right now? So the, set, the Panther Opportunity Fund is fully deployed into about 16 companies. Um, so we're about four years in. I'd say 15 of the companies are doing really well. Um, we have some home runs. We have some singles and doubles. Um, and so we created our third fund, which is called the Panther Micro Fund. We've raised some money into that, and now we're deploying into new deals now. Okay. And are you uh, are the deals that you invest in, um, number one, primarily in the United States, and number two, any particular part of the United States? They're almost all in the United States as of now. We will look overseas, but we prefer U.S. Uh, you know, it's interesting with the geo question. If it's an if it's an ancillary business, we it's usually all over. You know, it's like fintech or you know advertising, and then it's really not. Uh, related to the geography. If it's a grow operation or retail, you know, then we focus on what's happening in that area. So years ago, we invested in Oregon and California um, and did some things out west in Washington. Now we're looking at Maine and, and Michigan and Illinois and some of the newer adult use markets. I'm actually super focused on New Jersey, New York, Connecticut and PA. And uh, that's really going to be a big focus for the next couple years. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, which companies have been your home runs? Have you had any big exits already or any of yours, uh, you know, behind the first wave of the bigger U.S. publics? So one of the uh, home runs we have is a company called Pathogen DX. They're a diagnostic lab testing company. And uh, we actually like companies that can do business inside cannabis, but also in other verticals. And they actually developed a COVID testing kit. So they started off doing marijuana testing for labs and selling kits. And now they're doing diagnostic testing for COVID. So 
they've been quite busy the last year and a half. So they're, they're doing extremely well. Um, another one is BDSA Analytics. Um, you may be familiar, they're one of the leaders in uh, industry-wide analytics. Um, we have another one called Philo, which is uh, part of what I like to do is digital ad tech. Um, and they're doing really well in the advertising space. Very exciting. Okay. Now, you're from Philadelphia originally? Yes, sir. Okay. So how does a kid from Philly get caught up in, you know, the big time marijuana financing business? Yeah, it's a good question. So I actually, uh, prior to this, I co-founded an advertising business here in Philly. And we specialized in politics and healthcare. And we did uh, data-driven digital marketing. And so I got really involved in politics for, for many years. And there was a lot of different political issues that we worked on for advertising. And I was very proud to bring in the cannabis client <laughs> one day. Um, and, I, you know, my partner's like, what, weed, weed politics? I'm like, trust me on this one. <laughs> weed politics is getting very interesting. So we actually were working for the Marijuana Policy Project, running ads in Alaska, vote yes on cannabis in 2014. It was on the ballot and it passed. With Rob Campia. Yes, Rob was my guy, man. Rob was very influential in early days for me because not only did he give me business, you know, for this advertising, but I just would sit with him and be like, what's next? And I, I remember right after the 2014 cycle, I went down to D.C. and met with Rob and he said, it's all about California in 2016. That's what we're, you know, it's, it's the whole thing and it's going to tip over the whole country. So I immediately went out to Cali and started to uh, investigate more of the space in anticipation of the adult use market. So my, a lot of my thesis revolves around politics and what's happening in what part of the country and when. So my, my preamble on L.A. County then uh, resonates with you because you've obviously watched it on a county by county basis and city by city basis. And uh, you understand the great misnomer that you know, California is the single biggest adult use market, but at the same time is one of the most restrictive adult, adult use markets. You know, it isn't truly a, a free market state. It's, it's completely dependent on where you actually live in the state. So I, when you were talking about that, I had some flashbacks of, uh, we started the distribution business called Calix Brands in Oakland uh, back then. And it was really hard to figure out where we could take Weheed and where we couldn't. And, and we would even drive through a county and, and if our driver got pulled over, they might go to jail. And then the next county over, they would be legally dropping off cannabis. So it's the regulatory framework has been screwy from the beginning. We, we know that the taxes are a major problem. So it's encouraging what you mentioned, Rob, that they're trying to fix it and putting in more people and, and expanding. I still think it's got a long way to go, though. It, it, it does. And uh, Gavin Newsom's trying because at this point he's realizing that there's about to be a massive extinction event uh, with California-based businesses if they don't figure this out. So it's, uh, we'll see. I mean, the, the, there has to be some sort of an abatement in the, in the tax policy. But uh, if there's not, you know, right now you've got an oversaturation in, in the supply of, of California. And, you know, look, every state has their own uh, issues. Every state's got their own nuance. You know, Pennsylvania, you're, you're watching Governor Wolf, you know, drag his feet, even though you've got John Fetterman that's, you know, screaming from the rooftops to legalize cannabis. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's completely dependent on where you are. Obviously, in, you know, Illinois, we're watching, um, you know, we're watching Pritzker you know, have to pick up the reins from, you know, someone that wasn't nearly as uh, um, pro-cannabis. The interesting thing about PA also is we're now going to be surrounded by adult use very soon. So New Jersey is going to be light, lighting up soon. New York will be next year. Connecticut will probably be this year. And so PA and Maryland is also going to put it on the ballot in November, hopefully. So, you know, they really got to get, get it together in Harrisburg because we're going to be left behind and we're going to lose a lot of revenue. 
yeah, it's not that far to go across the border to Trenton. Right. Up when you're up in the East Coast corridor, there you can really get around pretty easily, I would imagine. So yeah, it's one big blob. This this whole this whole it's a one big economy. 30 million people in this area, and it's, it's very, the borders don't matter that much. You know, and I think a lot of America forgets that Philly is, what, the fifth biggest city in America? Yes. You know, it's, it, this isn't a small city. It's over, kind of overshadowed by its neighbor to the north, but anywhere else, in any other state, it would be the biggest, the biggest city in a region, not just in that state. So it's uh, that's a yes. huge, huge uh, driver, uh, an economic impact driver. And what's your sense of the overall, yes. you know, mood in Pennsylvania towards where that's going to go? Well, the medical market is actually doing really well here. They did something interesting about two years ago. They added anxiety as a potential medical condition, and all of a sudden the patient count went way up, and they ran out of weed a couple of weeks later in the stores, which was interesting. But so. You know, the medical program is doing really well, and so there's a lot of support to flip it to adult use. Unfortunately, there's about 10 senators in Harrisburg that have been pushing against it for so long. And so I think a lot of people want it to happen, but there's still this blockade happening. Is that just like a, 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 an opposition on principle, a kind of a moral opposition, or do they, I mean, do they have reasons why? I think it's an age issue, Larry, uh, most of the time. It's older politicians who are out of touch, who don't believe in cannabis as medicine for sure, and they still think it's going to cause all sorts of problems, and they're not well-informed. You know, you mentioned Fetterman. I mean, he's really an advocate, and he talks about, I really like what he says about cannabis because he speaks the truth. He's trying to educate people and trying to, you know, help the state. You know, it's also a financial driver, too. So is he going to win a Senate race? That's a great question. I, I really wish I know. I'm, I don't want to really get political, but um, it's a little scary on the Republican side. So I hope Fetterman does well. <laughs> He's running for, I mean, Toomey's retiring, right? He's running for Toomey's spot? Toomey's retiring. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what about Shapiro? Is he going to win the governor's seat? Yes. I like Josh Shapiro a lot, and I hope he becomes governor. And, I, and, I, I, and the other guy running against Fetterman right now is Dr. Oz, which I can't figure that out either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I think it's a nice blow to Oz. They wouldn't let him run on the ballot as Dr. Oz. It's got to be, you know, his first name of Met, I think, on the uh, on the ballot, which was which he's claiming is, is some sort of like racism. And I'm like, but that's your name, man. Like, you, know, it's, it's just, you can't run on just name recognition. You need to run on who you actually are. It's going to be close either way. We have a very divided state. I mean, if you remember in the presidential cycle, it came down to couple counties and things like that. So I think the Senate race is going to be tight either way. Yeah, I think so too. But either way, I mean, I think if Shapiro gets it, uh, cannabis still goes through even without Wolf. Um, I'm not sure, you know, who he's running against on the uh, on the Republican side. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But I certainly think that, you know, Pennsylvania is – all signs are pointing towards adult use. Um, now, Scott, I, you know, I know we're the deadhead cannabis show, and we typically keep our conversation to that. But you have – uh, a very unique night job, I guess you would say. Um, you know, unlike uh, in the Jerry Garcia song, you have both. So tell us a little bit about this night gig you have with the uh, local NBA basketball team there. Yeah, sure. Um, I keep stats for the Philadelphia 76ers. Been doing it since about 1988. Um, just keeping every number and every statistic during the game on a computer. I love basketball. I love the Sixers. So it's, it's a very enjoyable thing for me. How did you uh, come to have that job? So my father was the shot clock timer in the uh, 60s and 70s. And um, he actually, he was at the game where Wilt scored 100 points. And, you know, he was, he's been around oh my forever. God. Yeah. So when I was a little kid, 10, 12 years old, he would bring me to the games and I would keep score. He would hand me the program and I would just keep the stats for fun. 
And then I got out of college and they said, you want to work? And I'm like, you're going to pay me for this? Sure, I'll do it, you know? And uh, worked a lot of college hoops. Uh, you mentioned Villanova. I, I, I worked at uh, Villanova, or someone mentioned Villanova. Anyway, I worked there and Temple and LaSalle. And um, so a lot of uh, Philly hoops over the years. And I've been very privileged to be part of the scene. Well, that's, uh, what, what, what is it called there? The Little Five? The Big Five. Big Five, the, the Big Five, the, the city schools. City right, schools, I couldn't remember what it, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a hotbed of basketball in the world, Philadelphia. I mean, you know. Yeah. Which, but you were you were post Dr. J. I was a, yes. I started working there post Dr. J. Right at the end of his career, okay. actually. And right before we started, I happened as a as a big Bulls fan mentioned to you that uh, uh, the oddity for the Chicago Bulls historians is that Michael Jordan scored his five thousandth five thousandth career point, his ten thousandth career point, and his fifteen thousandth career point, all in the spectrum. Yes. And I had the honor of recording those points on a computer. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, did you ever have like Charles Barkley or somebody get in your face demanding an extra rebound? So, you know what's so funny about it? I'm not even going to mention the player, but literally last week, someone called upstairs and said, there was an assist that, you know, you didn't give us, give me an assist. Like the player had the PR guy call us and say, we, we robbed him of an assist. And we were like, you know, we, every play that we do is reviewed by the NBA. So we, we sort of say, it's not our fault. But yeah, that happens a lot. These guys pay a lot of attention to their stats. I bet they do. A lot of them have bonuses that are contingent on their stats, right? So they need to get that done. Wow. Well, that's very cool too. But I so, uh, and you're also a deadhead. Yes, absolutely. And how, how long have you been a fan of the Grateful Dead? Um, you know, I'd say definitely the '80s. Um, I'm trying to remember the first, probably '85, '86 was the first time I saw the dead, uh, 80, I saw the dead in 89 at their last show at JFK stadium, uh, which was awesome. And also the show that you guys picked out, I think I saw them a couple weeks later in at the spectrum in 95. I think that was the last time I saw Jerry, I was looking it up. So yeah, I've been, uh, you know, I, I, I've been going for a long time. I actually wish I had gone to more shows back in those days. I, I didn't travel that much. And I should have. Now I travel more to see shows than I did when I was a teenager. <laughs> Are you going around to see a lot of Dead & Company shows? Yeah, well, yeah, I've seen, I saw Dead & Company in Philly in uh, July. Um, I actually prefer J-Rad. And I saw them last week in Philly. And I go to festivals to see J-Rad. And I see them out in uh, New York at the Cap Theater. And um, I see Dark Star quite a bit at festivals too. So um, I'm, I'm definitely into... All of them. I have my favorites, but I'll see pretty much any of those when they're around. So, so my, my claim to fame of the Philadelphia Spectrum, Scott, is on March 18th, 1992. It's the, the first time I got arrested at a Grateful Dead show. <laughs> nice. So, the, so Spectrum, the Spectrum has a, uh, you know, hold fond memories of that place. We'd, we'd broken into the press box that sits way above the, uh, the top of the Spectrum. You've got to walk the stairs up from the top row. And somehow someone left the gate open to that, and they also left the, the fridge open with all the beer in there, and we drank all the network's beer, and we were playing the show over, over a telephone and dangling into the crowd. And the first night, there was only about six of us that went in there, and the next night, about 20 of us went in there. And the third night, it was just an all-out party in this joint, and, uh, and about 40 of Philly's finest came in to, uh, to escort us out. Oh, my God. So that was... Uh, That's hilarious. That was a, I don't know if you remember that 1992 run. It was a cold, cold three-night run. 
and you know they wouldn't even let us like gather our clothes or shoes or anything and we just got walked out of that place uh barefoot no shirts and oh my god <laughs> and uh yeah. loaded right in the paddy wagon so the thank you to philly for that I, I still made it back though for for many other shows um are you an electric factory guy then yeah yep I, i've gone there a bunch of times absolutely we have a lot of good venues now we actually have ardmore music hall now too which is right near my neighborhood and they have a lot of dead type shows they they frequently put like a group of guys together a couple guys from dark star a couple guys from here and there you know john Kadlachik and um, those guys and they come in and they do like a super group and they play the dead in fact one thing happened last year i met wavy gravy in ardmore music hall they had a wavy gravy birthday party and he was there and it was like maybe it was a couple years ago but shout out to Hugh Romney yeah and it was like it was so cool and they brought all sorts of really good people up and they played an awesome dead set um we I've seen Melvin Seals and JGB there a few times so there's a lot of good what, what about Bisco you're, you're a hometown fan of the Bisco uh, Biscuits oh yeah Mark Brownstein's a, a really good dude he's a friend of mine and he plays a lot of dead stuff too actually there he, they're really good Yep. Yeah, they're, they're cannabis guys. Him and Magner were looking at putting a, a business together for a little while. Yes. I've talked to him about it. Yes. They're, they're definitely into the weed space. Now, did you say, do you ever go out to Darby to the Tower Theater? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I've been there. Um, I'm trying to remember what dead show I saw there. I can't remember at the minute, but um, I was there for something like a couple months ago. Uh, but I forget. <laughs> I'll think of it. The only time I, I always wanted to see a show on the spectrum, my... One of my all-time favorite shows, which is actually coming up on the calendar, so we might be talking about it very soon, is April 6th, 82 from the Spectrum. I think it's the best shakedown street I've ever heard. Um, and it's uh, my, I, I, it was right before I saw my first Dead show. A bunch of my buddies were at that show, and I wound up with a tape of it that I listened to over and over and over. The Dead finally released it. I always said, i got to go to Philly and see a show on the Spectrum. Never made it for that, but in 84, I went there on the spring tour, and they were actually playing at the uh, Philly Civic Center. Whoa. And so we saw three shows there. And it was an interesting place to see them. Yeah. Uh, we liked it a lot. In fact, one of them was just released recently as a Dave's Pick uh, selection. But um, we had a great time in Philly. I, I also, my other big Philly memory was in 1982, no, 81, uh, a group of us drove from Ann Arbor out to Philly to see the first show of the Rolling Stones tour that year at JFK Stadium. They opened the entire tour there. I think with, uh, I want to say, Journey and Rob Thorogood and the Delaware, De George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers. And um, uh, for, for a few of us, it was the first time we tried uh, psychedelics. And uh, it was quite the afternoon. And, uh, you know, I had a, a very fond memory of uh, sitting out in that stadium on a beautiful day, watching the Rolling Stones and really enjoying it and thinking, my God, these guys sound so old. I can't believe it. And of course, it's 40 years later, and they're still Mick Jagger still runs around the stage like he's a kid. So, God bless them, whatever they're doing and doing right. So, Larry, that was the, that day was a very transformative day. I was 14 years old, and I convinced my parents to let me go to the Stone Show because it would be their last tour ever. You know, uh -huh. like, you got to let me go. You know, and of course, this is before cell phones or whatever. She dropped me off. I went in and. I was I was blown away, and it's really that was like a live music uh, indoctrination for me. Yeah, that that day it was amazing. Yeah, me too. I it was it was the first time I'd ever seen the Rolling Stones, um, and I was very very excited about that. And yeah, it was it was it was right up there like the first time I saw the Who. You know, and you realize these are really the, you know, these are the giants of rock and roll. You know, REO Speedwagon in Boston are a lot of fun, but you know, these are the guys that. Uh, 
that make it all happen. And uh, yeah, just an, an incredible town, a, a great shows, and a, and a really great place. Very cool. Very cool. So, so it's funny you mentioned the March 18th um, Spectrum show in 95, because the thing that that's got in common with the, uh, with the show we're listening to from Salt Lake today is if you ask, you know, sort of fans what the two best versions of Visions of, Visions of Johanna were that the Grateful Dead played, the ones that come in one and two are the last time you saw Jerry play, which is, you know, that the late March 95, and the, uh, the Salt Lake City show that, that we're listening to. And I would go back and forth and try to say, I'm not sure which one is better. They're both near flawless. Uh, I'm partial to the one at the Delta Center simply because the Delta Center was the first one they played it since 1986. And it was just such a surprise, I mean, along with a lot of the other stuff they played during that show. I mean, Salt Lake City was a surprise. Uh, that would be something. I just want to make love to you. And Visions were all, you know, songs you did not expect to see in a set list at that time. I don't know, Dan, I don't know if, do, do you have any of that, uh, the Visions that we can, uh, we can listen to? She makes it all too concise and too clear that Johanna. Great tune. I was lucky enough to catch it a few times um, uh, back when they were first playing it and then uh, after they brought it back. And, you know, when Jerry could remember the lyrics, it's just a beautiful tune. And even when he couldn't, he plays it really nicely anyway. So that's a great song. That night, I remember, you know, there's certain memories that stick out in your mind of where you were and what was happening at that moment. But the, the morning of that show... Uh, I just had an ounce of sassafras delivered to my house. This is sort of predating the Molly days, and this is, you know, like when sassafras is by far the best ecstasy you could get in powder form. And I spent the entire, like, lunch that day, like, packing gel caps, you know, getting them ready for the show, a little fifth of a gram, um, you know, gel caps. And, you know, an ounce is a fair amount, you know, five to a gram. You know, you're, you're talking, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a chunk of ecstasy. And, like, everyone I was with took, like, two or three of these things. And we were hanging out, you know, because Visions came out of space. We were hanging out in the sort of rotunda area in the hallways, you know, waiting for space to be over, playing video games. Like, they just had, like, a, a couple of videos. We were playing, like, um, uh, I don't know, whatever the NBA game is that was uh, really big at the time. And we started hearing it sort of fade in. We're trying to figure out, like, what are they coming out with? And it wasn't until, like, as soon as they started, like, going into the, uh, the, the notes for, like, four or five seconds before they started, before Jerry started singing, that someone I was with is like, that's Visions of Johanna. And we're all like, no way. He's like, no, that's Visions of Johanna. We just dropped what we were doing, and we were so high out of our minds at that point. Like, it was, like, just, like, peak performance, like, high on ecstasy, that running in, and boom, just, like, catching, like, just a, one of the greatest breakouts, at least of all the breakouts that I saw, I would put that up there as, you know, like, top three for me of, of the ones that, like, were most impactful of just, you know, so soulful, so perfect, so unexpected, uh, so clean. The licks on that were just, just pure fire. Every time I hear that song, it brings me back to that moment of time of sort of being in the Delta Center going like, wait, what? And just sprinting to get back towards, you know, where, where our seats were. But just amazing. Which is the version on uh, from the Phil Zone? That's the Philly one, I'm pretty sure. Um, um, yeah, because the Philly one, the Philly one, he gets all the, nails all the words. The, uh, the the one in uh, in Salt Lake, he flubs the words on the um, on, on the. You can hear the night watchman clicking his flashlight and asking himself if it's him that it's insane. Like the whole D train line, he uh, flubs the words on. He flubs the words uh, a little bit on like on the back of the fish truck that lows while your conscience explodes part. 
But the rest of it, musically, I would say the Salt Lake City one um, is, is the better version. It's just, it's so clean. It's just like his licks are perfect. And, and it's much fun, you know, and I don't know about you, Scott, but Rob and I talk about this all the time that, you know, people say, man, but Jerry forgets the words. You're like, but that's part of the fun. It's kind of what makes him human and, you know, adds, like, oh, you can, I remember this version. He forgot the words here or that version. Yes and no, though. though yes and no, because he had a teleprompter for this. Right? If you got a teleprompter, how do you forget words when you're reading a teleprompter? Well, I was just going to say, he had a teleprompter in 95? He had a teleprompter, he had a teleprompter for that vision. So the first time, the first shows in 95 were the first time we'd ever seen him have a teleprompter before. And we figured part of the reason he played visions that night is like, okay, I can now play songs I couldn't remember the words to previously, oh. but now I can actually nail them. So he had a teleprompter for visions. And it, like, that was the one thing we're like, how, like really? <laughs> how are you blowing this? Uh, now, having said that, you only missed a couple lines, and at the time, I think I told you earlier via email, Larry, that like I didn't know all the words to Visions, and it wasn't until after I heard that version that that was the, what prompted me to get on the internet for the first time ever. Like, I'd ask someone, like, hey, come to the library at the University of Utah, show me how to get on the internet, because I want to see if I can look up what the actual real words are to Visions Johanna, because we, 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 I added the tape of the show an hour after the show, and I was listening to it over and over and over again, trying to piece together what some of those words were. So if, if I can thank anyone for getting me on the World Wide Web, it's it's Garcia and Bob Dylan to look up the other uh, lyrics of Visions Johanna. That's funny. That's funny. Well, you know, look, I mean, I've said it a lot of times. I mean, you know, Jerry Garcia singing Bob Dylan is what really turned me on to Bob Dylan. I mean, I like Bob Dylan, but, you know, Blowing in the Wind and a few songs that we all knew. Um, and, you know, he just, it's like, he, it took me to the albums that these songs were on, which then it turned me on to all those albums and, and really pulled me into Dylan all the way all together. And, I mean, this, you know, if you're going if you're, if you're to sing Dylan tunes, this is about as good as it gets. And you think of his poetry and you think, okay, there's certain, you know, there's certain lines, there's four or five gems that come out of this song, you know, whether it's the, the Mona Lisa must have the highway blues, you can tell by the way she smiles, or the, the line we just played, which is the ghost of electricity is housed in the bones of her face. I mean, those are those are beautiful lines, like the uh, the skeleton keys uh, in the rain line. Like, there's certain things where like only Dylan can evoke, like things that make you think that way. And visions just nails well, it. Right, like Louise and her lover so entwined in the visions of Johanna, they conquer my mind. It's you know, right? It's it's really, it's amazing stuff. And uh, and Jerry really sang it really well. You know, he he had the voice where he could kind of add that emotional edge to it. And, and it was a lot of fun. Um, were you a big Dylan fan, Scott? Not as much. In fact, I liked, and my, what I thought was when the Dead did something from Dylan, I always liked the Dead version better. <laughs> so, so did Dylan. Right. And I respect Dylan and one of the most amazing songwriters we've ever had. But I do, I, you know, and I li I've seen Dylan shows, actually. But, um, no, I like when the Dead does, does those covers and adds them, adds some flavor to them. So speaking of covers, uh, this, this show is so great that we even actually have a second clip right now uh, that we're going to cue uh, up here in a minute. And I have to say and confess that this is all part of my uh, musical maturation process because sometime in mid-85 or 86, I think they played it for the first time uh, at Ventura, I recall. And the song is I Just Want to Make Love to You, which of course is a number that's been around forever. But my immediate association with it at that time was Foghat. Foghat was like this band that I loved and I listened to all the time. And they had uh, slow ride. <laughs> yeah, they had the live album with you know just great versions of Fool for the City and everything. And it was one of the first live albums that really you know got me hooked on live music. And I'm thinking, 
why are the Grateful Dead covering Foghat? And of course, as soon as I asked, you know, some deadhead, and they looked at me like, what the fuck are you talking about, kid? And I was like, okay, lesson learned. Uh, but I, 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 I will confess that here we are 40, 50 years later, and I hear that. Uh, it, it still makes me think of Foghat, but, but go ahead and play it. Who was the original? Is it Muddy Waters? I, you know, I don't even, I'm gonna, by the time we get back, I'm going to have an answer to that. Willie Dixon. There we go. So Willie Dixon also is a little red rooster, right? Ah, uh, yeah. He's got a few of them in the repertoire that they've uh, that they've delved into from time to time. But I was uh, going to guess Chuck Berry, but I'm glad you told me. <laughs> you know, to hear Jerry and the boys play that, I you know, whatever. It's just fun for me. I I, I must confess that one of the great things I like about jam bands. And uh, we've talked about this before as well as, you know, all the great covers that they'll do. And so we talk about the dead and covering Dylan and the Beatles and and so many great things like that. And then, you know, they cover a tune like this. And, and you know, Fish does it too. I have to say, Rob, I was, uh, Scott, are you a Fish fan? Uh, not nearly as much as the dead, but I like Fish. I'm probably in your camp. I've seen them a handful of times. I do enjoy them, but I never. I love Trey. Yes. Trey by himself, Trey Band and uh, Oysterhead. I like that a lot. Yep. Yep. Bring it out the Oysterhead. I love it. Yeah. yeah, but the other day I'm I'm driving home and they're playing a a a, a fish show from '93, and I hear the intro to this song and I start going crazy because nobody in the audience is saying a thing, because the song clearly outdates all of them. But it was I I forgot who recorded it. Was it Doctor Hook in the Medicine Show on the cover of the Rolling Stone? Yeah, that coincided with when they got the cover of the Rolling Stone. They they, they played that. I don't know if you know the story behind it, but. They were um, going to be on the Rolling, cover of Rolling Stone the next week, and so they uh, they played that song as an homage to the fact that they knew the uh, the magazine was coming out a couple of days later. Oh, see now, I mean, I didn't know the story. But I'm not enough of a fish head to know that, but I hear that, and it just in my brain all of a sudden explodes. I'm like, come on, you know, this is like one of those songs we all sang when we were in fifth grade and we tried to learn all the lyrics to or whatever, and now here's Fish, you know, years later, it's already years later, you know, playing it. So, but but you know, the the covers are just a fantastic part of it, and. Um, uh, on, on our way out tonight, uh, uh, in a few minutes, we have yet another uh, uh, cover that the Dead played at this show, which is uh, a, a great version of Broken Arrow. And uh, I, I love Robbie Robertson and um, uh, love the fact that, uh, you know, that was a song that not only that they covered, but that they let Phil cover. So, Larry, the uh, J-Rad encore the other night was Dear Prudence. Oh. When Jerry Band did Dear Prudence, I just think it's amazing. The jam in the back half of that song is incredible. So I was happy to see J-Rad do it the other night. You know, that's great to know. And I have to tell you that other than like when I, in October, when I got to see Phil play with the quintet at the cap for three nights. And, you know, to me, that's that's as good as Grateful Dead music and, and you know, jam band music gets, uh, you know, if, if they're not going to do it. But, you know, J-Rad, to me, otherwise, is far and away the, you know, the best dead cover band out there. And I base it entirely, and maybe this isn't fair, but I think it's very crucial if you're going to be a dead cover band, they play the eleven the way the Grateful Dead played the 11 in 69. I mean, much better than like Bobby's current versions of it and everything. And even Phil's screwing around with it. And they, 
but you know back then boy the you know that's and j-rad just nails it they've got the voices in and out and the guitars and they and i i just couldn't have been more impressed and after i heard that i was on board with them and larry as i was saying to you you know it's kind of the, the same thing you just said about uh not knowing who uh who made the cover initially like with Broken Air, it wasn't until today. I'd always thought it was a Rod Stewart tune that, that Robbie Robertson had covered. I mean, I knew, I knew it from the Robbie Robertson album. For some reason in my head, I had it that Rod Stewart predated his version. And I figured that Robertson on his debut album in 87, uh, first you know, thing he did sort of post-band, was covering Stewart. And uh, it wasn't until today that I realized it was the other way around. There you go, right? The wonderful musical world. We're always learning something new, and uh, you know it can change your perspective on things a little bit. But um, one other thing about this show that I want to touch on, because you know, there's there's just so many great songs in this show. If we really had, you know, enough time to go through all of it, um, one of the songs I had thought about featuring was uh, "Samba in the Rain," right? And "Samba in the Rain" was a kind of a fun tune for me. I think it gave you know Vince kind of a little bit of footing in the band, and uh, you know gave him a chance to really get up there and and have some fun with it. And I was listening to the version of it earlier, and that sounded like that was a, a really solid version of it. You know, they're having a good time up there playing, and it was great to see. What What are your recollections of that, Rob? So I actually went back and listened to that Samba today, and, uh, you know, look, I, it, I wouldn't say it was one of my favorite songs, but I think it's one of the songs that had, like, they played it longer, you know, had, they ch- had a chance to play it for a couple of years. Uh, I probably would have liked Samba more, because it's actually got, like, a good Samba beat to it. You know, it's got a good sort of, like, Latin, you know, dance beat that's, there's a lot to be said about that. It's just, I had a tough time with um, Vinny's like high-end pitch when he's saying a lot, a lot of tunes. That was great as a harmonizer, but as a lead, there's very few songs I really liked Vinny taking the lead on. But that's just personal preference. Like musically, I, I think that uh, it's a lot of fun. And the other thing about this show that that that, that has to be mentioned, because this is '95 already, so it's not like this is the first time they're playing it. You got to first set so many roads. I think most of them were first sets back then. You know, like the, I'd say more more so many roads than not were uh, were first setters. I remember them in the second set, but I, either way, I you know to get that plus a visions of Johanna. I mean, you know, to get two. That's the great part about it is like you know it's rare when you get like two great great ballads where you get one in the first set, one in the second set. You know, it's like you never... The, once in a while, the bird song was kind of like, you know, the, the great Jerry ballad you get in the first set. But uh, but it's rare that you get, you know, something like where you get a, so many in a, in a Standing on the Moon or a Morning Dew in the same show. Exactly. And, you know, the other thing that I guess is just worth noting, and at the, at the risk of offending any of our younger listeners out there and, and maybe anybody else even who's on our podcast right now with us, one of the things about 95 shows that used to drive me crazy, and this is just my own personal thing, is you sit there and you see just an absolutely amazing show like that with a tremendous Sugar Magnolia closer. I mean, everything you want, and then they come out and they give you a Liberty Encore. And I'm sorry, I just was never a fan of Liberty. I, I never bought into it. I, you know, I, And I go to shows now and kids are like, you know, God, I hope he plays Liberty. I love Liberty. Liberty is so great. And I'm like, I, I, you know, am I old-fashioned? Am I just missing the boat on this one? I mean, I, Phil obviously likes it because he plays it all the time. He can't get enough of it. Am I missing the boat on this, Rob? Is there something going on with that tune that that, I, that I'm just not seeing? I mean, look, it's a, if you're into like rebellion and uh, you know your sort of mantra is "Don't tell me what to do," it's a true libertarian song. I mean, if Robert Hunter said, you know, define libertarianism, liberty is is the the embodiment of kind of that ethos, right? So you know, for that reason, is it cool? It's a, it's it's a rebel song. Uh, other than that. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Liberty either. I mean, it's as much of a throwaway encore as, uh, as I thought the law was to me. You know, I heard Liberty. I was going to the parking lot, getting my cooler, and getting ready to sell beer, right? So, But at least 
At least I thought the law was another good cover, though. Yeah, sure, but I mean, I, I, definitely not one of my favorites. But you know, it's a good excuse to make my way to the door and get good position in the lot to start, you know, making money as soon as the show ended. Yeah, but you see, that's the killer too, right? Because then you never know. Ever since uh, Scott hasn't heard this story, a lot of people have that. The night of my rehearsal dinner for my <laughs> wedding in in 1988, September 3rd, the Dead did their uh, last yeah. version, live version of Ripple. Uh, electric ripple at the cap center and all these buddies of mine missed it because they were at my wedding you know and and a lot of people who were at the show missed it because it was a second encore and they all went running out whether the first encore was u.s blues or whatever and they're like i gotta go out and get set up in the parking lot and then nobody else came out and then they tried to figure out what's going on and they heard after that i'm like i will never better than liberty even the very last show right the very last dead show they, they, Black Muddy River is the encore, and we were all like, really? This is the end of the tour? And Phil saves the day with a box of rain, you know? But You should always know Chicago is always a double encore on the final night of summer tour. Always. In 91, 93, and 95, you got a double encore. I, I, I walked out on Lucia Sky with Diamonds, like, the second time they played it. Where I just walked out the door, I was like, ah! <laughs> and the security's like, nope. Sorry. <laughs> Not going back in, right? No, you're done. And then they laugh and they think it's funny because you're outside yeah, melting exactly. down. You know, they're inside doing their thing and everything. So it's crazy. Um, Scott, before we go, thank you again so much for joining us. How can listeners reach out to you and get in touch with you if they're interested in what you're doing and want to talk? So the panthergroup.co is our website. Um, we're actually super easy to find on LinkedIn and Instagram and um, you know, I, I'm easy to reach anywhere, you know, reach out. I love talking to people about the space or music. So, you know, I'm easy to find and happy to chat. Excellent. Well, thank you again. We appreciate uh, uh, your insight and your contributions to the Grateful Dead conversation. Always appreciate it. Please give my best to David the next time you talk to him. And uh, we'll continue to watch you guys and uh, hopefully have you back in the future. Appreciate it very much, guys. Thank you. Absolutely. Rob, what are your uh, uh, farewell thoughts here today? Uh, not much more than, you know, thanks so much, Scott Berman, for, uh, for coming in. My best to David Friedman as well and the rest of your crew. And uh, super fired up to see you in Southern California next week, Larry. Yeah, looking forward to coming out there. Hopefully I have a chance to see you. And we just found out that uh, uh, my buddy who's going to be out there with us, oh, my friend Alex, who's always we're always talking about on the show with Jay last week and everything, uh, Alex was able to score six tickets for us to see the Eddie Vedder show uh, down in the San Diego area that Sunday night, the 27th. So uh, very, very excited about that. Um, I like uh, Pearl Jam, a big Eddie Vedder fan. So you know, if you're going to be out in California, you have to see at least one outdoor music show or else, you know, kind of what's the point, right? So we'll, uh, we will look forward to, to touching base with you when we're out there next week, though. And um, touching base with all the fans again in a week. Everybody have a great week uh, on our way out. Please listen to Broken Arrow as sung by... Phil Lesh on February 21st, 1995 at the Delta Center in Salt Lake City. And uh, otherwise, we'll talk to you next week. And everybody, enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your canna confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.